Hi everyone, Mike here. I had a brilliant time in this episode laughing and chatting with the lovely Kirk Wise. In the interview, we discussed beginning as a caricature artist at Universal Studios, advice for those applying to the legendary Cow Arts Film School, being scared green, directing Beauty and the Beast, managing the dark tone of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, being pulled into a Lion King story writing room where he heard the phrase circle of life banded about for the first time, being responsible for the US dub version of Spirited Away, and much, much more. That's enough from me. Here we go. Howard and Ellen played for us their first version of the Beauty and the Beast ballad, and we all got goosebumps. It, it, it just, you know, we knew Mrs. Potts was going to sing it. We all had Angela Lansbury in mind, even though she hadn't been cast yet. I, and I remember thinking, you know, even in that early rough uh, state, that this was going to be, you know, a classic for the ages. This was going to be another When You Wish Upon a Star. You just felt it. Everyone in the room felt it. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film crew member turned screenwriter working in London. Each episode, I bring you life lessons and stories from the people behind your favorite movies and shows to help demystify the business for aspiring filmmakers and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is a multi-hyphenate animator, director, writer, and storyboard wizard. Gaining an early directing credit, working on Disneyland's Cranium Command, he was soon thrust into feature direction on historic classics such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Atlantis The Lost Empire, and of course, Beauty and the Beast, the first animated movie to ever be nominated for Best Picture. My guest is Mr. Kirk Wise. How are you doing today? Good. Great to be here. Thank you very much for being here, Kirk. Now, you've listened to the interviews. You know that I always ask the same first question. That question is, what did your parents do, Kirk, and did it affect your career choices moving forward? Um, it actually did. Interestingly, um, um, Although my father eventually became a minister, um, very early on, uh, when he was younger, uh, he had gone to art school and he had studied uh, drawing and painting. And he was also um, a uh, cartoonist, you know, from, from the moment he, he could hold a pencil. He drew cartoons for his high school paper and his yearbook and such. And so I remember being very young and my dad would do drawings for me just to entertain me. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. It, it. To me, it was like this wonderful magic trick that I really wanted to learn. So my first art instruction came from my dad. He showed me kind of how to draw simple cartoon characters. And he, he, he kind of guided me along in my, my earliest attempts at drawing. And that kind of morphed into, you know, not only a lifelong interest in drawing and cartooning, but eventually I became interested in animation. Was there ever any thought of going into live action or was it always drawing and animation? That was the way. Um, for me, it was always about animation. Um, I remember, gosh, you know, initially I, uh, when I was very young, I, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to, to have my own comic strip. So that's what I aspired to. My, my early heroes were Charles Schultz and, and Walt Kelly and Johnny Hart and Mort Walker and I obsessed over the comic strips, and that's, that's really what I wanted to do. But I remember a visit to Disneyland uh, when I was uh, young, probably about seven or eight years old, Disneyland in California. And in one of the gift shops, um, I picked up a flip book. 
And it was of Mickey Mouse. It was an old piece of animation of Mickey Mouse uh, in a cowboy hat with a lariat, spinning a lariat. And I remember flipping through it and just being absolutely amazed. And, and it really opened up my eyes because up until that point, I hadn't quite made the connection between drawing, you know, static cartoon images and making them move, making them come to life. So, so seeing that Mickey Mouse flipbook really opened my eyes. And then, and then I really became interested in animation. That's when I started doing my own flipbooks again, because I realized that, oh, it's just a bunch of drawings. Each one is just a little bit different. And when you look at them really fast, you know, one after the other, they, they, they appear to move. And so that, that really captured my imagination. Yeah. It reminds me of that illusion of life book. That's the title of that famous book, isn't it? Yes. Yes. That the illusion of life, as I'm sure you've heard from some of your other guests, Joe included, it really became like the go-to textbook for all of us budding animators in the early 1980s uh, that came out uh, in my first year at CalArts. And we, we, I think it came out like between my first and second year in CalArts and we all just obsessed over that. So yeah, back to your earlier question, I, I, I started making uh, my own little animated movies on, on Super 8 film um, when I was about, uh, yeah, when I was nine years old. It was, it was the summer between the fourth and the fifth grade in uh, elementary school in California. And um, back then, you know, my efforts were extremely primitive. I, I, I was literally, it was just cut out bits of paper or bits of clay you know, very silly, simple stories about things exploding or monsters eating each other. <laughs> but yeah, those were my first attempts at animation. And, and I, I sort of stuck with that hobby, making short animated films along with drawing cartoons um, all the way through high school. And that, that eventually led me to, to learning more, to learning about uh, CalArts and, and putting together a portfolio and deciding I wanted to go into animation as a, as a profession. Amazing to pick up that flipbook and to see where you would ultimately be at Disney. But um, before we get to Cal Arts, am I right that you did caricatures at Universal Studios? That is correct. Yes, when I was, uh, that, that was actually the summer after my second year at Cal Arts. Um, I had a friend, a fellow classmate, um, his name was Dan Hofstede. Uh, and he and his dad and his brother drew caricatures at, at the local theme parks. He was a local. He grew up in Orange County. I was, I was from Northern California. But he, uh, he drew caricatures on weekends at Magic Mountain, at Universal Studios, at Knott's Berry Farm, all, all like the, the, the Southern California theme parks. And um, through him, um, I got a job. I got the opportunity to, to draw caricatures for one summer. And he kind of coached me and a couple other of my friends along and kind of the, 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 the techniques involved. They were very quick, super quick sketches, always in profile, in black and white. And, and you had to really kind of develop your muscle memory in, in kind of carving out this very slick style, with a lot of sort of thick and thin lines. And, and, you know, we didn't do any underdrawing. It was literally, you know, pen to paper, go. It took a lot of practice, not only to achieve a reasonable likeness of your subject, but also to make sure that it was always cute. It was always kind of cute and funny. Um, um, 
it's interesting. It's like they weren't caricatures in the sense that 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 their features were so exaggerated that that they were like grotesque. Um, they were always flattering, <laughs> even if even if you even if you exaggerated the feature here and there—a forehead, a nose, a chin, yeah. facial hair—there always had to be kind of a twinkle, a spark, something that would make you smile. Another thing that we always had to keep in mind is that when we had an audience. We had a uh, down shooting video camera above our drawing board and behind us on a shelf um, was a television monitor and just a black and white television monitor. So uh, the crowd who would gather around the caricature stand uh, could see us doing the drawing. And so it became kind of a bit of performance art. People would be intrigued, one, by the speed that you could do it. So the faster you could draw, the more the more interesting it was for the audience. <laughs> um, and the more profitable it was for you as an artist because we literally were paid per drawing. We didn't get an hourly wage. And it also encouraged you to come up with, uh, with details in the drawing um, that would make the audience laugh. <laughs> and a lot, of, a lot of these little tricks I learned from my friend Dan, who'd been doing it for years. Um, for instance... Uh, you would draw the the head first. You try to you get the likeness first, and then you would ask the subject if they had a favorite hobby or activity, something they like to do. You know, it could be water skiing, it could be surfing, it could be dancing. So you would draw, you know, a tiny little body above the great big head, cute little you know sort of chubby cartoon body engaged in some activity. But you would always find, you know, some little joke or gag you try to incorporate into the picture. And the more you could kind of say it was all about timing. You could save the little punchline to the gag that you were drawing till the very end. You would get a laugh and that would encourage more people to come up and get a drawing done. So it really was uh, kind of a performance. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, you probably got a lot of reps in there, both for drawing and also learning comic timing, which have helped you in your direction a lot later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was it was pretty simple stuff. It's like if you drew a guy surfing, the last thing you would draw is like a little shark fin following him, you know, and that would get the laugh. Good, clean fun. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned Cal Arts there, which is the famous film school, which is, you know, had basically everyone go to it from Disney and Pixar. What's the process like when you go to a school like that? And also kind of the application process because there'll be some people listening to this that want to know we probably want to go to account arts do you present a portfolio what sort of thing how does it go well back then and this was a long time ago this was i I applied to the school in in 1981 and uh it was really all about drawing I, i i had spent uh the better part of a year putting together a portfolio that contained what i thought might were my very best drawings and I really concentrated on my strengths. I, I was I, I I was more skilled in in cartoony drawing and character design than I was in drawing from life. Even though you're encouraged to draw from life, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it was never my strong suit. So I I leaned into what I could do well. I had a friend, fortunately, uh, Rob Minkoff. He was a high school friend. He went on to direct uh, uh, Lion King and Stuart Little, but he was a year ahead of me, and he actually went to CalArts a year a year before I did. So he was able to take a look at my portfolio, make suggestions as to what to include and what to not include. So, so I actually had a bit of a leg up, th- thanks to Rob. 
literally my portfolio, uh, I was accepted into the program based on the quality of my drawing. And, and that's at least at the time, that's what it really boiled down to because we were learning traditional hand-drawn animation in the, in the Disney mold. You know, that was, it was well before anybody was, was really doing any serious experiments with, with, uh, with computer graphics that would change, you know, just, uh, just a couple years into my, my experience at school, um, was when, was when, uh, John Lasseter began experimenting with, with computer animation, not only at Disney, but then, but then for George Lucas. Well, you worked on the Brave Little Toaster, didn't you? Which actually, I think was like a precursor for Toy Story, funny enough. <laughs> like he pitched that, didn't he, originally? Yeah, it's, it's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember Brave Little Toaster. I was still a student. Brave Little Toaster was a project that was uh, set up at Disney. Um, it was being produced by an executive there named Tom Wilhite. And um, all the kind of young, you know, CalArts uh, grads were, were attached to it creatively. These, these were guys who were a few years ahead of me in school and had already graduated and, and moved on to Disney. And that included Joe Renft and, and uh, John Lasseter and Jerry Reese. And, um, you know, I, I was really admired these guys because obviously, you know, they were making it, they were doing new and exciting things and, um, visited the studio one day. I think I had lunch with it, with it might've even been Rob who was accepted into the training program there. And I remember seeing the storyboard pitch materials, some beautiful color drawings by Brian McEntee. And I remember thinking, oh, these are so cool. These are so wonderful. This would be such a fun project to work on. So a couple of years later, after I graduated, the project had uh, left Disney along with Tom Wilhite. Tom Wilhite uh, got let go and took the project with him and uh, got it set up as a little independent, low-budget animated feature with uh, Jerry Reese hired to, to write and direct. And he, he signed up... Uh, Joe Ramft and Brian McEntee and uh, my buddy Rob doing character design and a bunch of other people that I knew from CalArts. And uh, I got the opportunity to, that was actually one of my first animation jobs uh, getting out of school. And it is funny, the, the bare bones of the story have some real uh, kind of surface similarities to, to, to what eventually became Toy Story. You know, the, this, this group of inanimate objects that come to life and have this really strong attachment to their owner and, uh, you know, this kind of whole, whole uh, kind of quest journey road picture where, they're, where they, they seek to be reunited with their owner. There are definitely a few similarities to, <laughs> to what became Toy Story, but a lot of the same creative people worked on it. So it's, it's uh, not too much of a surprise. And you got your first few animation gigs on your CV and your first kind of directing gig really, I guess was Cranium Command with Gary, which was a Disneyland attraction. Yes. Right. What was that like? Yes, it was, it was actually uh, an attraction down in, in Epcot in Florida. And uh, Gary and I, this was, uh, I had transitioned from doing animation at Disney into the story department, which at that time was called the visual development department. And Gary and I had been teamed up, on a couple of different projects that, that, that didn't get made. We, they, there were some Roger Rabbit uh, short subject ideas that were, that were percolating because the movie had become so popular and the, and, and, uh, the studio wanted to keep the Roger Rabbit character alive. 
So Gary and I did a presentation for, for a proposed Roger Rabbit film that, uh, that didn't get made, but they sort of thought Gary and I were a good team. So they kind of kept, kept us together. I knew Gary from CalArts, that, that, so we, we, we already knew each other. And, you know, we were very, sim- very simpatico in terms of our sensibilities and our uh, the stuff we thought we thought was funny. You know, even though our drawing styles were, were, were quite different, um, we could really make each other laugh. That, that was that was, I think, the key to Gary and I's relationship is that we cracked each other up. <laughs> so we, we laughed a great deal. So uh, along comes this project that, that's kind of in trouble. Um, our boss at the time, who was running development, a guy named Charlie Fink, uh, uh, pulls us in uh, to his office, and uh, uh, we get kind of roped into helping fix this short kind of introductory film that's going to be played before this Disney, this, this attraction down in Epcot called Cranium Command. Um, all the animation had been completed by an outfit in Northern California. And the studio wasn't happy with it. They weren't happy with any of it. They didn't like the writing. They didn't like the design. They didn't like the animation. And um, they basically wanted to pull the plug on it and start over. And so Gary and I were essentially given carte blanche to reconceive this pre-show. We, we had to use some kind of very fundamental ideas, which was, you know, the, the show was about a typical day in a 13-year-old, 13-year-old boy's life except that we, the audience, were going to experience it as though we were inside his brain, which was envisioned as this kind of, kind of uh, crazy high-tech uh, 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 cockpit where all these different characters were controlling all of uh, uh, Bobby, the kid's name was, all of Bobby's uh, emotions, emotional responses, and physical responses to the things that we would see and experience literally through his through his eyes. There were these big eye-shaped screens in the theater. So our uh, pre-show film had to set all of that up. Had to set that whole concept up for the audience. So it was about the the first day of this young recruit named Buzzy uh, going on his first training mission in a 13 year old boy's head. And he's been coached by this, by this raging impatient drill sergeant type of character that we called uh, general knowledge. And um, our model from him was the, was the R Lee Ermey character in full metal jacket. Oh yeah. <laughs> we did. What was kind of funny about this project was that it was being sponsored by the life insurance company, Metropolitan Life. And they wanted it to have this whole stress management theme (laughs) because it was part of the Wonders of Life Pavilion. It was all about life and health. We just kind of barely touched on the stress management theme. And of course, to us, we thought it would be very funny if a character who was supposed to be teaching you about stress management was just hollering at you all the time and and (laughs) screaming at you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so the storyboards that we that we developed for Cranium Command were very well received and they put it into, into production right away because it had to be turned around in like three months and through a series of circumstances um, it fell to me and Gary to actually direct it. The original director that they had for it, which I believe may have been my buddy Rob he got the opportunity to direct a Roger Rabbit short. Again, not the one me and Gary developed, another one. 
Um, and so he fell out of that project and we kind of got promoted from being the board artists on it to the directors of it. So that's how Gary and I got our first directing gig at Disney. It's great to hear about your first directing gig. And it's amazing, therefore, to me that I know there was a brief stint where you were on Rescuers Down Under before getting fired, but we can yeah. skip over that one. <laughs> and <laughs> you obviously got onto Beauty and the Beast next. And you basically don't have much directing experience. No. How did that feel? Were you nervous? What was that like? Oh, my God. Yes. Gary and I were, were, were absolutely scared green. <laughs> Uh, I, <laughs> um, we had finished Cranium Command. You know, it was a, it was a fun experience. It was stressful because we had to finish it very quickly. Um, but you know, uh, at the time, Rescuers Down Under, which was being made in another building, was going through a period of, of extreme story revisions. So all of their animators were sitting around with nothing to do. So we got a team of amazing, you know, feature quality animators to come and work on this silly little short for Epcot Center. So, so the, the, we knew the quality of animation was going to be, you know, light years beyond what they already had. So that was terrific. And that was a great experience. And it allowed us to kind of form relationships with, with some of the best uh, animators at the studio, Andrea Stasia, Dave Pruxma, Nick Ranieri, Chris Wall, and, uh, boy, the list goes on and on. So some of those guys, including the guys I mentioned, ended up becoming our supervising animators on on Beauty and the Beast because of our experience with them on Cranium Command. So after Cranium Command was done, Gary and I basically were were kind of booted back into the development department and we were storyboard artists again. And we were like, oh, that was fun. Um, You know, back back to storyboarding. So so we, we were literally... Uh, both on an assignment, uh, trying uh, developing a a goofy short again, something that never got made. It was called Goofy of the Apes, and it, it was it was a take on the Tarzan legend, but starring Goofy as Tarzan. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun. You know, we drew. You know, Goofy, Goofy crashed into a lot of trees and smashed coconuts on his head. Did a lot. Did a lot of uh, goofy things. Um, but once again. Uh, uh, you know, even though we kind of knew that down the hall and, and uh, you know, across the pond, Beauty and the Beast was being developed, um, we didn't really have any connection to it. We didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes. But we got called into, again, Charlie's office. It seemed like just a few months after we finished Cranium Command. And he said, you know, there's a big shakeup on Beauty and the Beast. Um, they're bringing everything back to California. Uh, the original directors are leaving the project. They're pulling Howard Ashman and Alan Menken onto it to turn it into a musical. It wasn't being developed as, as a musical prior to this. And uh, they're going to need new directors. And, you know, the spotlight kind of shone on me and Gary because of the success of Cranium Command. And even though we weren't necessarily their first choice, I don't think, you know, we were available. We We had proven ourselves and we were kind of, on the, I think we, we were we had you know managed to distinguish ourselves in in, in their very recent memory. So <laughs> so uh, uh, they put us on a plane, and before we knew it, we were in New York in a conference room on Park Avenue in Manhattan, having our first meeting on Beauty and the Beast with 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 Howard Ashman, and so it all happened so fast that. 
you know, there, there really wasn't time to be too scared. I remember being very nervous about it. And I remember, I think, I think I even expressed to, to the head of animation at that time, a gentleman named Peter Schneider, you know, my, my nervousness about it. And he said, well, what are you nervous about? And I said, I'm, I, you know, basically I said, I'm afraid of failing. And Peter said, God bless him for saying this. He said, we won't let you fail. What he meant by that was he was going to surround us with, you know, the absolute top talent that the animation studio had at the time to, to help make sure that we succeeded. And he was good on his word. And we, we ended up with a absolutely amazing crew of story artists and animators to help us, you know, uh, reconceive Beauty and the Beast. That's amazing. Did you ever see what it was going to be like before it was a musical? Was there anything there? Only peripheral, only kind of in a peripheral way. I remember seeing some of the artwork in the halls. And I remember at the time, you know, I, it wasn't really to my taste. It, it, it just felt very, it just felt a little stodgy and a little cold. And it wasn't particularly warm and funny. And, and so I didn't have a great response to it, but, you know, I also know that these things take a long time to, to develop and a lot of things can happen in the course of, 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 uh, of a movie's pre-production. So I'd have to say it, it, my impression of it was kind of neutral. I was like, well, this is, this is okay. It's not really my thing. You know, I, I, I kind of, I kind of moved on, but when we were brought aboard, um, because Gary and I weren't under any obligation to use anything that the, that the previous creative team had done, we really followed our own instincts and, you know, made the best use of the, of the, of the talent that we had around us. People like Roger Adlers and Sue Nichols and Brenda Chapman and Brian McEntee and their sensibility was, was very Disney. They, they were always looking for, for ways to create uh, warmer, funnier, more relatable characters. So I just think overall, our our point of view, I think was 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 different enough that we that what we ended up with really bore no resemblance to to you know how the show was developed under the previous uh, directorial team. Well, I guess therefore the songs, I guess in a musical, they set the tone, don't they? Yes. So where do they come in the process? They you know you've you've got the visuals, you've got the music. Yeah, yeah. Very early on, Howard and Alan were involved literally from day one, and they were very much Howard, in particular, uh, a part of restructuring the story. And since it was going to be conceived as a musical, the songs were kind of going to be the tent poles that that you kind of strung the story between. Mm. And so the ideas for the songs started to to uh, uh, come up as early as our first meeting. I remember Linda Wolverton had a very sketchy outline of, of the new, of what the basic building blocks of this new structure were going to be because, you know, this was a page one rewrite. So I remember that outline being handed out in our first meeting. And I remember little notations in, in, in pen by Howard in the margins of this document you know, where, where, where just the kind of bullet point story ideas were. And at the time it was, uh, Maurice, uh, finds the castle. Um, he's taken in by the enchanted objects. 
they make him dinner. And then in the margins, there was just this note that said, song? Question mm. mark. <laughs> and we all, we all know what that became. <laughs> so that, that was pretty much as extensive as it was when I, when I came on for the project. But uh, that meeting kind of served as a springboard for, for further meetings where we and kind of a skeleton crew of story artists and designers um, we would go and meet with Howard and Alan in upstate New York in a little town called Fishkill uh, at a hotel conference room uh, on a fairly regular basis. And we would talk about story and we would bring storyboards that we had done and they would discuss with us song ideas that they had or ways to musicalize moments that they saw in the storyboards. And so it was very hand in glove. It was a very collaborative process. And I remember one meeting in particular where, uh, gosh, I think, I think there were some rough storyboards that Roger and Brenda and, and uh, Bernie Mattinson had done of Belle uh, uh, walking through the town and, uh, you know, with her, with, with her nose buried in her book. And I remember ha uh, Howard responding really well to the boards and, and both he and Alan getting very excited about how they could mu musicalize this whole sequence and how, how this, this morning walk of Belle could be a great way to introduce all of the characters, set up, you know, set up their wants, their desires, who's in conflict with who, all in a very, you know, efficient and fun package. <laughs> and, and that led, I remember in the conversations, that, that led Howard and Alan to, to, to talking about, you know, basically kind of the style of music that would be in the movie. And one of the words that was thrown around was operetta. And, and I, I think that was a, a very strong influence on Howard and Alan, particularly for that opening number, where there's so much information packed into such a short period of time. And, and, and it's very light and the songs are full of, of wonderful wordplay. Um, so it really has that feel. Speaking of the songs, my favorite is obviously Beauty and the Beast Ballad. Is it true, though, that Angela was actually, Angela Lansbury, of course, was actually a bit hesitant because it was a rock ballad? I don't know where I heard that initially. Well, it's funny. It, 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 uh, in, in the movie, um, it was, you know, ne never, never conceived as a, I, I don't think as a rock ballad. I think the rock ballad idea came later, but now that I think of it, it's interesting. Um, because I remember again, one of those meetings in Fishkill, New York, um, Alan and Howard were noodling around on this rented electric piano with with an idea for the song that would eventually become the Beauty and the Beast ballad. Because we've been talking about the sequence where the two of them fall in love and how that would be in the ballroom and they dance for the first time. Howard was talking a lot about that moment in The King and I, where, where Anna and the King dance for the first time. And he, he, he kept thinking, you know, of, of the song, Shall We Dance? And interestingly, uh, I, I don't remember how exactly we, we moved off of Shall We Dance and then started talking about um, the ballad uh, The Rose from the movie The Rose that Midler sang years ago. But, but somehow in the course of that meeting, that became the model for the song, that sort of beautiful, sweet uh, uh, rock ballad. So I think in a subsequent meeting, Howard and Allen played on the electric piano um, Alan on, on the piano, Howard doing the vocal, played for us their first version of the Beauty and the Beast ballad. And we all got goosebumps. 
it, it, it just, you know, we knew Mrs. Potts was going to sing it. We all had Angela Lansbury in mind, even though she hadn't been cast yet. And Howard sang it. And all of us were just like, my God, this is, this is magic. I, and I remember thinking, you know, even in that early rough uh, state that this was going to be, you know, a classic for the ages. This was going to be another When You Wish Upon a Star. You just felt it. Everyone in the room felt it. I think, you know, fl- flash forward months later when we're actually in the recording studio with Angela Lansbury, I vaguely recall she expressed some trepidation about, about uh, uh, singing the ballad to, to Alan and Howard. But I think Howard really put her at ease and just really had her inhabit the character, you know, and practically, uh, you know, it, it was more important for the emotion of it and for the personality and the warmth of the character to come through than it was for her to, to you know, sing out like, like, like Bette Midler. So, so her performance feels so spot on and is, and is so in character and so warm and lovely. I can't imagine anyone else doing it. I mean, no disrespect to Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson. They, they recorded a wonderful pop version of it for the soundtrack. But Angela's version is, is the classic. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the word, isn't it? It's warm. You can hear yeah. how kind she sounds in there. And that is very Mr. Yeah. Potts. I'm aware that we've got a lot to chat about. So to segue from light songs to darker songs, I'm intrigued by Hunchback because it's obviously famed as kind of the darker one of the Disney um, Renaissance era. Oh, yes. <laughs> and particularly, you know, the Hellfire song is known for it. Generally, though, do you almost feel that Punchback would be made today? In You know, so there's kind of some of the themes in it are quite full on, the lust, the Romani thing. Oh, yeah. Do you think it would be different? You know, what really was our kind of guiding star at the time that we made the film uh, was, the, was the novel itself. And, and the previous film versions of the novel. And we knew that creatively we could not, that there were certain themes and certain ideas in the story that we couldn't shy away from. Otherwise it stopped being the Hunchback of Notre Dame. We, it's like we knew we had to adapt it so that it would be suitable for, for Disney's core audience, but we wanted to make sure that we honored the spirit of the original. And that's where Hellfire came from. And that's one of the obviously main uh, themes of the story is this, this, uh, you know, it's what the source of Frollo's villainy is that, is that he's trying to destroy Esmeralda, but he secretly, you know, uh, yearns for her, lusts after her. So it was important for us to, to uh, dramatize that. And obviously it seemed like a, you know, absolutely ideal villain song moment. And Howard and Stephen were, were really passionate about uh, weaving in this kind of liturgical style of music into the score of Hunchback of Notre Dame, just because it seemed kind of, kind of uh, the right approach, given the, given the movie's uh, setting. So that's where kind of a, the concept of, of, of Heaven's Light, Hellfire, uh, it's really a suite. It's two songs played against each other. It's, it's Quasimodo's very pure, light love for Esmeralda. And then Frollo's very dark lust for it, for Esmeralda played back to back. So we always thought of it as Heaven's Light slash Hellfire, even though Hellfire gets all the attention. (laughs) The good thing was um, we had a lot of support for that song and for that sequence from the get go. Everybody from Michael Eisner on down knew that it was essential uh, to the storytelling. 
And everybody loved the song that, that, that Howard and Alan came up with, even though it was very intense. And we knew that, that it was just going to be a matter of execution to figure out how we walk the line between, you know, expressing Frollo's dark desires and, and making it intense and scary, but not, you know, so inappropriate or offensive that, that it wouldn't still feel, feel at home in this movie. So yeah, we, we, we pushed it, you know, we definitely were <laughs> licking the edge of the envelope <laughs> uh, in terms of, of, of content. Uh, but like I said, we had a lot of support uh, from the studio. I don't recall ever at any time being told to tone it down. I remember we had to accommodate um, the Motion Picture Association, the people who decide on the ratings for the films here in the, here in the U.S., um, we had to accommodate, accommodate them on one thing during the final mix of Hellfire. Um, at one point, uh, Frollo sings, this burning desire is turning me to sin. And on, the, on, and on the syllable sin, there's this rush of fire in the fireplace and these red-robed judges you know, spring up out of nowhere and loom over Frollo and terrify him. You know, it's all happening in Frollo's head because he's he's... He's literally going mad. But uh, to keep our G rating, amazingly, our general audience rating, we had to, or we were asked, we didn't have to do anything. The Motion Picture Association of America suggests, but they don't insist, but they suggested that if we could um, perhaps raise the level of the sound effect of the fireplace, a skosh, and lower the the uh, word sin in the mix that would make the overall song you know it would lessen the impact of the overall song just enough that we could hold on to our g rating <laughs> so that's what we did we accommodated them so so in the final mix it's this burning desire is turning me to sin. <laughs> Got a lovely voice, Kirk. I didn't know. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> On Hunchback, uh, one of the things I haven't heard you talk about much about is there was a trip to Paris, wasn't there, with you guys? Did yes. that reap much creativity? What was it like being embedded in the culture? Absolutely. No, we we, we spent two weeks um, doing a research trip to to all of the medieval parts of Paris and medieval towns surrounding Paris. You know, with a, with a team of our of our key artists, our head head of background, our head of layout, our art director, um, our uh, some of our key animators, and uh, it was wonderful. We got to crawl all over the cathedral and, and view it, and take photographs of it, and sketch it from every conceivable angle. We got to go into parts of it that the public typically isn't allowed to go, and and it was it was a tremendously valuable uh, research trip. And, and one of the reasons why, why uh, we were encouraged to do this and, and the studio paid for it was because this was not going to be like a fantasy location. Medieval Paris was a, it was a very real physical place and a lot of it was still standing. So, so to, to really get the feel for it and, and, and make the film really feel like it's actually taking place in that setting and to just give it authority it was it was really important important for us to experience the real thing and to make our our uh, version of the cathedral as as accurate as possible we took some dramatic liberties we scaled some things up 
Um, I think the size of the cathedral relative to the buildings around it is exaggerated in our our version, you know, for drama's sake, just to make more more exciting pictures. Um, But I think that's totally fine. You know, it's terrific. It's animation. It's It's a heightened reality. But but our location, I think, was much more reality based than any other movie we worked on before. So that, that's why we did it. Yeah, I can imagine having that access to Notre Dame must have been amazing for the creativity. Yeah, it was fantastic. We, we we went to the highest point in Notre Dame, and we went to like the lowest point in the city. We went we went into the into the catacombs beneath the city. You know, those amazing winding hallways lined with human skulls. And boy, that was unnerving to, to be, you know, a hundred feet below, below the sidewalk, you know, surrounded by skeletons <laughs> was a little bit scary, but, but it was also really cool and, and found its way into the movie with, with our, in the Court of Miracles sequence. Take a bunch of Cal Arts kids and stick them in the catacombs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never knew. I honestly, when I, I, I didn't know at the time when, when I was considering a career in animation, that you know, it would be like joining the Navy. It was like go into animation and see the world. <laughs> I had no idea there'd be so much travel involved. It was wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of Notre Dame, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a big theory that the cathedral is actually alive in the film. For example, when Frollo tries to drown Quasimodo and it's oh, yeah. staring at him. Is that was that is that true? Yeah, it's completely intentional. We 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 literally talked of the cathedral as being a character in film, mm. and that it would have a personality, and that it would smile upon those that it loved, and would be extremely menacing and and glower at those that it did not love, <laughs> <laughs> like Frollo, because you can you can see how it how it uh, uh, it how it welcomes Esmeralda. And, and beckons Esmeralda into it and responds to, to Esmeralda's basic decency and her kindness. And, and you can see how it uh, responds to Frollo, you know, and his, his, his sin and his lust and his, his deceitfulness um, in a completely different way. So yeah, these were these two aspects of, of the cathedral that, that, that uh, we wanted to show. And yeah, we, we treated it like it's, it had its own personality and that personality was expressed through through lighting, through the statuary, you know, where we literally would sometimes give the statuary a disapproving expression, you know, from the perspective of somebody like Frollo. <laughs> That's totally awesome. I think it really makes sense. Um, it's interesting talking to you about the movies you've made and obviously you're on the Disney animation part of things but you're also talking about how it's very very collaborative you're kind of ripping it up together which is something that's kind of famed for the pixar brain trust but am i right that you got pulled into a kind of similar thing on the lion king where you all got in there being like right action stations we're ripping this apart that's that's absolutely right they were having they were having a lot of story trouble on lion king and they they convened uh rob and roger and don Hahn. Uh, Rob Minkoff, Roger Allers, and Don Hahn, producer and the directors of The Lion King, um, held a weekend meeting, and they invited uh, not only their key story artists like Brenda Chapman and, and Chris Sanders, um, they also invited uh, myself and Gary, and uh, we spent the the entire weekend uh, basically ripping apart the story outline and and starting from scratch. You know, using the raw material. And, and, and the characters. And uh, it's like we sort of knew where it had to go, but how we were going to get there was, was what we were, were reconceiving. And we had a lot of conversations 
and just scribbled ideas out on paper. I remember, I remember, you know, being part of the conversation where we conceived the entire Simba uh, sees his father's ghost sequence in that room. And I remember these thumbnail drawings that Chris Sanders did and just stuck onto the, stuck onto the board. Gosh, I remember the phrase circle of life being bandied about in that room for the first time. Wow. And, and which is a, became the basis obviously for the song that became this, you know, massive worldwide hit. But that came out of a conversation in that room where we were saying, well, you know, the story, this story isn't linear. It's more like Bambi. It's a circle. <laughs> it's a circle of life. Somebody else said, mm. <laughs> and, you know, you, you step back from it and it's hard to, to, to say, Oh, well, this was this person's idea. And this was that person's idea because it was such a, a kind of, kind of chaotic and collaborative and, a crazy process where people are just like shouting out ideas and drawing sketches and slapping them up on the wall and standing back and, and, and then attempting to stand up and, and, and pitch through them. But yeah, that, that the, the outline that we came up with on that weekend was the outline that eventually was pitched to Jerry Katzenberg, who was the head of the entire Disney studio at the time. And, and it was the outline that they stuck with for, for the remainder of the film. And we referenced uh, uh, a bunch of things in that meeting. We, we referenced uh, uh, Hamlet and we referenced uh, the biblical story of Joseph and his brothers. The, those were kind of the two sort of pieces of classical storytelling that, that, that we kept uh, going back to and uh, not Kimba the White Lion, as uh, some people have, have suggested. Interesting. Was there anything that you remember that was on the board that was notable that didn't go in in the end? Oh, in that meeting, not, not that I recall, because we were really talking broad beats in that, in, in that meeting. So, the, so the, the, the broad beats stayed the same. You know, like in, any, like in, in the de- development of any movie, there, there were you know, things that dropped out. But interestingly, it was that meeting where we kind of you know, shoved aside some, of, some older concepts. I think one or two characters got, got, uh, uh, kind of fell out during the course of that meeting. I can't remember what they were. <laughs> When you run your own story rooms for your own films that you're directing, what's your approach to the collaborative process? Because it sounds like you're very non-auteur. I guess it's different in animation, though, isn't it? Oh yeah, no. I, I, it, it, it's to me the 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 strength of, of of the best animated films is that they're so collaborative in in nature. I I, I always feel like the process of making animation, I think, is very much like. Um, Another uniquely American art form, jazz. It's, it's like you, it, as, as a director, I always feel like I'm working with a bunch of jazz musicians and I'm trying to set the tempo, but I have to leave room for people to improvise and solo and, and do the thing that they do so well. I really enjoy it when it's collaborative and it's a really free exchange of ideas. Um, and I think that comes from, from my years as a, as a storyboard artist. I appreciate it appreciated that when I was on cruise where the director was uh, uh, really listened and there was a lot of feedback and, and collaboration and, and just kind of a, just a joyful and fun process rather than a really dictatorial, you know, purely director driven process. So that's what me and Gary liked. And it's what we tried to encourage on our films. And, and to me, it makes the movies better. I, I feel like you get the best of everybody. Well, I think it definitely worked. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Library of Congress and all that sort of thing. I, th- I think it's. I think it went fine, didn't it, Kirk? <laughs> yeah, I think it went okay. 
Now, I think the obvious thing to do as we move further into this interview is to talk about Atlantis, but I'm going to talk about something which I don't think I've heard you talk about before, okay. which is Spirited Away. Um, I noticed that you were involved in the ADR of the English version of the famous Japanese animation. Yes. And I wanted to hear about your experience on that, you know, getting a Japanese script in the mail. How does, how does that work? Sure, sure. Yeah, believe it or not, I did that after Atlantis, and it was actually one of the last things I did at the studio before, before I left. Um, this was back in 2002. Um, I heard through the grapevine that, that Disney was going to be distributing um, um, several of Miyazaki's films and that the task of dubbing Spirit of the Way, which had been an international sensation prior to, to coming to the U.S., the task of dubbing that was, 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 uh, had fallen to John Lasseter. And this was back in the early days when, when there was, there was a much kind of more collegial relationship between feature animation in Burbank and, and Pixar up in Northern California. Uh, there was a very free exchange of artists and ideas and we, we would give notes on each other's movies and stuff all the time. Uh, because I was unassigned and I still had uh, a few months left on my contract, um, Tom Schumacher, who who had succeeded uh, uh, Peter Schneider, called me into his office and said, John Lasseter is producing this English dub of Spirit of the Way. I want you to have a look at the movie and uh, consider uh, directing the English dub of, the, of this and, and, and what that would involve would be working with the writers to adapt the screenplay, uh, casting the actors who... who, who uh, would play uh, uh, the Americanized versions of all the roles and then directing the, the, the recording sessions and then being part of the mix, you know, directing the, the mix when, when the, when the uh, voices were, were incorporated into the final soundtrack. So, yeah, I thought I, it sounded challenging. It sounded interesting. I hadn't seen the movie yet, but it was screened for me in, in our downstairs theater. And of course, you know, I just fell in love with it. It was so transporting and so amazing. It was, it was you know, one of the most uh, beautiful and moving and, and just, just visually stunning animated movies I'd seen ever, you know, from any director. And so, so the chance to be a part of it, you know, I thought, I thought would, be, would be exciting and fun. But after watching it, I realized that, that my job was really about trying to stay as close to the spirit of the original film, no pun intended, as I, as I possibly could. I didn't want the American dub, I didn't want the quality of the voices to feel dubbed, in air quotes. There was something in the Japanese performances that to my ear, even though I didn't speak a word of Japanese, felt very relaxed and naturalistic. Nobody was putting on a, a cartoony voice. Um, it just felt very emotionally real to me. And so I wanted to hold on to that feeling of emotional reality when I went into the recording studio to record the American voices. So that guided our casting choices and it guided uh, the writers when they were adapting the dialogue. It was a very talented husband-wife team, Don and Cindy Hewitt. And their job, which they did an absolutely amazing job, was to not only retain the meaning of the original Japanese dialogue, but phrase it in a way that still felt like natural human speech <laughs> and, and uh, 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 conveyed the personality of the character and, and whatever plot points needed to be covered. So that was a tall order. 
And, and they did an amazing job with it because my number one rule, which I kind of shorthanded down to, to <laughs> a very short phrase, I, I hated Japanese, I hated in particular uh, a Japanese anime that sounded dubbed. And I was the, the worst offender to me was a show that I grew up with, uh, Speed Racer. <laughs> when it was adapted for American audience, um, audiences, it had absolutely horrendous American voices that were so grating to my ear. And the dialogue that they wrote for the characters, they seemed to be only concerned with kind of making sure they had enough syllables to fit the number of open and closed mouths that were in the animation. So they were all full of unnecessary words and little guttural exclamations and, and things that made it sound very weird and stilted and unnatural. And I was like, I don't want any of that. No speed racer. It cannot sound like speed racer. So no speed racer was, was my rule. <laughs> so anytime, anytime, you know, we had a, a, a line of dialogue that did not to my ear sound like a way a human being would naturally phrase something, we would rewrite it until it did. <laughs> I think that's the right choice. Yeah. And I think all that work paid off because I was really happy with the way Spirit of the Way turned out. We had a wonderful cast. Um, Devay Chase was absolutely wonderful as Chihiro. And she was just a natural. I mean, she was still a little kid back then. And at the time, Devay was 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 playing the evil ghost in 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 the ring movies. Oh. She's the little girl who crawls out of a well in the, in the American version of the of the Ring movies. Yeah, and <laughs> she literally was shooting. I think I think it was on the Ring too. I think it was on the sequel. She was like shooting in a water tank across town at 20th Century Fox, and then she'd be driven over to to the Disney Studio on the other side of town by her mother. Her hair is still wet from spending the morning in the water tank, and and uh, performing as Chihiro for us. And she just had no problem. I, I, I think it was the fact that she 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 was was such a gifted kid and had such a wonderful imagination. She just just could slip into this character and into this world and you know become a part of it, even though she was concentrating on trying to because we have a video monitor in front of all of our actors as they were doing their dialogue so they could try to match the, the mouth action. Amazingly, she never got hung up by the the technical aspect of it. How she was able to 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 because she's in every shot in that movie. I mean, my God, uh, she had more dialogue than anybody else. Yet she would nail it, you know, on her first or second take, and it would feel real, it would feel sincere, and it would also match the the lip sync. So again, she she was tremendously gifted, and I think the fact that she was uh, a kid and not an adult pretending to be a kid enabled her to to step into the shoes of this imaginary character in an imaginary world, you know, without a second thought. Wow. I mean, that's amazing insight. I'm, I'm glad I went down that, that rabbit hole. <laughs> now, Kirk, I'd like to finish on Red Carpet Rookies with a quickfire questionnaire as my own ode to Actor Studio. So just think of whatever comes into your head and answer with that, if that's okay. The first question being, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Uh, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given is surround yourself with talent and then let the talent do their job. J- jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Number two, do you have a favorite film? 
boy, oh boy, that changes on a day-to-day basis. Currently, it's the godfather. <laughs> Good choice. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for a day of animation or direction? Um, ever since I was a little kid, I've always loved living in my imagination. You know, even though I'm very good at, distinct, at, at distinguishing fantasy from reality, <laughs> I love the fact that, that um, I can actually earn a paycheck by living in my imagination because it's my favorite place to be. So, so that's what, what uh, gets me up every morning is the chance to, to go into this, this infinite playground of my mind and hopefully, you know, play around in there with, with, with some friends. <laughs> I love that answer. And I'm glad we've been able to experience it too. Uh, number four, which job, normally I say which job, but for you it's which job because you do so many. Uh, would you do in the industry if you weren't doing yours, plural? Believe it or not, um, I like to act and I love acting. Yeah. And, and there was a time when I considered being an actor. I, I, I did a lot of theater when I was in high school, and I even did a voice in Cranium Command. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was one of the characters in the main show. I had, I had done the temporary voice for it when we were putting together the storyboards. And the director of the main show, who, again, was Jerry Reese from Brave Little Toaster, he liked, what I, he liked the version of the hypothalamus character that I did he liked it so much that he he kept it in in uh, uh, kept it in the attraction. So I was the voice of the hypothalamus in Cranium Command for fourteen years. <laughs> That's your real claim to fame, Kirk. Forget yep. about Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> uh, this is the hardest one. I apologize to all my guests. If you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Jim Henson. Easy, nice. Without question, Jim Henson. J- Jim Henson was another childhood hero. Uh, his his imagination was so amazing. His sense of design was was so pure and and joyous, and and so I was so captivated by by his characters. I remember the very first time I saw the Muppets on a color television. This was probably in the late '60s. I was completely blown away by how vibrant and colorful they were. Um, you know, they weren't just shades of gray, you know, they were blue or bright green or bright yellow. They, they, it was so amazing. And the characters were so warm and had so much personality. And his voice in particular, when he voiced Kermit or Ernie, it just had such a soothing effect to my ear. He just seemed like, like, like an adult that you would really want to have as an uncle or a, or a best friend. And so, so I always really admired him and I'm sorry I never got to meet him and I'm sorry I never got to work with him. I love that answer. Uh, number six, ideally for filmmaking, but doesn't matter, can be your choice. What is a book that everyone should read? Um, I would say if anybody is interested in uh, storyboarding, one of the best books you can read is called Five Seas of Cinematography. Oh, interesting. Well, well, we'll check that one out. Yes. And then finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Um, I would thank my parents. I, I would thank my mom and dad for always making sure that there was drawing paper and art supplies in the house. In my in my house growing up, there was no such thing as wasting paper. And I remember my father said, you know, to say you're wasting paper is the same thing as saying you're wasting thoughts. <laughs> well, fantastic. And on that note, sadly, our time must come to a close. Thank you so much, Kirk, for your advice and frankly, a masterclass in stories and storytelling. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. 
To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is to join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or Twitter at rcrookiespod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at Mike F. Battle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.